Good, good. Good to see you. I'm so glad to see you, whether you're online or here. Uh, I'm so glad you're a part of what God's doing here. We've been in a conversation uh, over the last couple of weeks regarding the one thing that you get. It's guaranteed until it's no longer guaranteed. You get days, right? So we want to look at what can happen. What kind of potential does every day of our week hold? How can we harness what God has already given us to be able to see how he's working and moving in our lives? And what I've realized, at least in my own life, my phone's in my back pocket. Sorry, I don't want that. That doesn't need to be in there. Uh, what I've noticed in my own life is that faith, in order for it to work, has to work every day. It's not enough to have faith for Monday and not Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. That what I think God wants us to do is to understand how faith can actually be infused into every aspect of our lives. And it happens on a, in a rhythm that God has already created. Because we know he's created everything with a rhythm. The rain that's falling now is going to fall into the waters and go back into the sky or however that works. And there's a rhythm that God has created a rhythm in your life and in mine as well. And so what we're doing is we're harnessing the power of the, the days of our week to see what is God doing today. And we know several weeks ago we talked about Sunday as the day of rest. That we pause uh, in our lives one day a week and we say we've got to rest and we work from rest so that we're rejuvenated and ready to get back into uh, life. And so we rest. Monday we start things new. It's the day that we create new things. I told you I started a new podcast uh, you've probably all heard it, but I've started a new podcast. That was my creating something new. We got to start, but you know, Tuesday's the day we got to face the battle. Anybody have a battle Tuesday? I had a battle. Barb did. Barb has a battle every day. You had a battle. You have a battle every day. I had a battle Tuesday, and I, I was on the phone, and I'm like, this is my Tuesday. This is my Tuesday. I'm calling you my Tuesday because I'm facing the battle, but you know, we don't back down. We don't shrink back because what God wants to do is he wants to work in and through us every day of the week. So Tuesday we face the battle. Today I want to talk about Wednesday. Anybody have good feelings about Wednesday? Positive, negative? Wednesday's like a weird day. It's like a meh. Like it's not, not the weekend, but it's not the week. Uh, if you work a, a regular schedule, it's like hump day. So it's like maybe I'm getting close to the weekend. Uh, if you don't work or you work uh, you know, all the time, then it doesn't matter to you if it's Wednesday or not. Wednesday's got this like weird feeling that, that we don't really know yes or no. Uh, you're, you're past the beginning of the week, but you're heading towards the weekend. What I know about Wednesday, though, is we can't overlook it. Wednesday's a fascinating day in history. Wednesday was once called Odin's Day. So if you've ever seen the movie Thor, this is Anthony Hopkins' character, Odin, in history. This day was dedicated to him. In Old English, Wednesday was actually called Woden's Day. Everybody say Woden's Day. I catch myself saying that now, like, that's Woden's Day. Uh, Woden's Day. The Greeks, though, the Greeks are funny. They like to change everything. They like to look at things and go, I don't want to do it that way anymore. Like, if you're in film uh, and they see a brand, you Greek it out, you block it out, because that's what the Greeks did. Uh, so the Greeks were like, no, we're going to call it something different. We're actually going to name Wednesday after our primordial god named Wymir, right? If you're looking for a name for a kid, I'd, I'd steer away from Wymir. Wymir was an evil giant in, uh, in, in Greek mythology. And Wymir was such an evil giant that it, he was said to have uh, started giving birth to evil babies out of his armpits. Now I know you just stepped into church and you're like, whoa, what's going on? So stay with me for just a moment. I'm going somewhere with this. He's giving birth to evil babies out of his armpits and he gives birth to so much evil that they're starting to fight and there's this intergalactic battle that's taking place between evil beings and there's bloodshed and, and, and dead evil beings all over the place. And it's fascinating that the Greeks actually believe that Odin and his brother took 
the blood and the bones and the remains of all these evil beings and started to form the earth. That if you were a young child in, 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 in this time period, in, in Mesopotamia, you would have been taught in history that the earth was created by the blood, the oceans were created from the blood of these evil giants, the trees were formed from the bones and the hair. You were taught in, in, in Mesopotamia, in, the, in, in history, that this is how the world started. It started out of evil, formed and shaped out of evil. And the common understanding among all people during the most violent time in human history was that you were a byproduct of evil. And everything around you is a byproduct of evil. And there's evil everywhere. And so if your mindset is set that everything that you've done and everything that's been created is done out of evil then you would naturally perpetuate evil. And we see throughout history why this was such a violent time because they've been taught from a young age that everything is corrupt and everything's evil. And yet what happens in the midst of this uh, chaos and violence and anarchy is Moses pins some words in Genesis that cut through the common understanding of how the world was formed. And in Genesis 1, in the midst of violence and chaos, come these piercing words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This statement alone would have stopped someone in their tracks. What God? Odin? Ymir? Odin's brother? Who? Who shaped, who formed the earth in the beginning? What? A God who didn't pull blood, a God who didn't use bones, he didn't create out of evil, but he started anew? This would have caught anyone's attention. And in verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. What Moses is saying is there was no evil giants, there were no battles, there was no war, there was nothing but God. This was a complete reversal of everything that they had been taught their entire lives for thousands of years. Moses' words are reversing every bit of it in Genesis 1-3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And he called the darkness night. Evening came. And then morning the first day. That this word good is so crucial. And in other verses, we read it so many times that this word good is crucial in a culture that didn't even understand good was possible. All they had known was evil. All they had known was violence. All they had known was chaos. And here Moses is using this word good. And in verse 6, it says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the water separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so Verse 8, God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Anyone reading this would have said, wait a second. Odin didn't create the sky? Odin didn't shape and form the world? And in verse 9, then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth. And he called the gathering of the water seas. And God saw that it was what? Good. God saw that it was good. 
Over and over we read the word good in many other versions. It puts the word good, and, and, and every time God created light, it was good. God created this, it was good. And you read good over, over, over. You get it. I get it. God, we get it. It's good, right? Like after you read good for a while, you go, okay. The problem that I have with this passage is that uh, he's using the word good. Like I had some tea this morning that I thought was pretty great. My wife made dinner last night, and I thought it was pretty fantastic. I mean, it usually is. Like, I use descriptive words that are stronger than this for very basic things in my life, right? And yet, we see that the universe is being created, and the only word that Moses could think of is it was good. But the word good was a complete reversal of how everyone saw the world. The word good was a complete and opposite reversal of how people were taught from the beginning of time that the world was not good. The world was evil. The world was not good. It was evil and it was formed out of evil and you're the byproduct of evil. And what Moses is saying is none of that is true. He's saying it was the good and, and, and Moses and the scriptures were, were reforming what people believed about the world and how it informed their daily lives. They were stepping into human history and changing and shaping the way things sounded and, and, and the way things were, were lived out for everyone. And when you have the most violent time in history, you have scriptures like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? We've always heard that and we've been like, what? Why would, that's a weird thing for God to invite us into, right? But what God was doing in scripture was he was saying, you're so violent as people, let's just scale it back a little. You know, because in human history, during this time period, what would happen is there would be violence, somebody would push you, and you'd go eradicate their family, and God's saying, no, 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 let's just, let's just repay what they've done. And there's a lot of strange verses, like if they push your pregnant wife, you can push their pregnant wife. And you're like, what? I'm not pushing any pregnant wives. But all it was was Scripture going, okay, we've got to put some form and shape because this is so violent and so evil. And then Jesus steps into human history and he says, I'm taking all of that. Oh, it shifted to animals for a while. And then Jesus steps in and he says, I'm taking all that anger, all that violence but when Moses says it was good, you have to imagine how counterintuitive uh, it was to people who were all caught up in violent acts. And Jesus steps in and he says, we're doing away with all of that. That we are now being shaped and formed. And it says in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created both male and female. And we find that he created man. He didn't create us out of anything but himself. Jesus, or God rather, speaks everything into existence. And then he stops, he pauses, and then he handcrafts man. And he could have handcrafted man in any image. We could have been like uh, in the image of Wymere, you know what I mean? Having babies out of our armpits and stuff. But he created us in his image. And this is lost on so many of us that the ultimate creator created us in his own image, in his own likeness. That the, the creator now created us to reflect his creativity and his self-determination and his, his will and his likeness. That our entire self has the capacity to reflect God Almighty. And it's lost on a lot of us that we are a reflection of God himself. And I love that the most important book in human history starts with a story of an artist at work. God painting the skies just with his voice, breathing life into things with just words that he's forming and shaping. The act of creation and the account of everything there is visible and is invisible. Heaven and earth is just being spoken into existence. I imagine a, an artist with a paintbrush just going to work, 
doing what seems like madness, but shaping and forming something that's beautiful, that God, the ultimate artist, then begins to handcraft you and me. In a world that was violent and dark, God then takes what is formless and he brings form. He takes what is dark and he brings light. He makes something from nothing and it's important to note and it's important for those living at the time period that God didn't create something out of what was already there but he shapes and forms things out of nothing and he breathes and he blows over the waters that his breath is life and it's life giving and life making but there's more to the story. See, the Genesis creation text is not confined to telling us how the world was created. But it's also a witness to the creative power and potential of God that the word create is not confined to what God did, but it is actually expanded into what God is doing. He's not done creating. He's continuing to create in me and you, and he shapes and he forms the world. It wasn't an impersonal environment, but it was a personal home, our home, And it always makes me mad when Christians don't want to take care of our planet because God created it, and he created it for us to live in. This is our home, and we have a responsibility to care for it. And so God has placed us here in his own creation, and he's allowed us to be a part of his masterpiece. And for centuries, theologians and and scientists, they've been debating and discussing how the world started I have in my mind like this image of, you know, a couple of old men with long white beards sitting in a room right now talking about old earth versus new earth. Like it's just shaped, you know, centuries ago, is it new? You get geologists in the room, they're like, hey, I can show you a rock, it's obviously an old earth. And you get other people like, maybe it's new. And, and we, we debate and I've gotten caught up in these conversations. The problem is we're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, is it an old earth or is it a new earth? The question is, how do I get in on what God's doing? How do I become part of what God is doing? That if I see something that's been handcrafted and created well, I want to know my part. I love, when I see an artist, I think I want to be a part of what he's doing. I want to be a part of what she's creating. I want to be involved in that. But yet we have first eyewitness of God's handiwork at work and we're debating on how and why, but we're not asking, when can we be a part of it? What is my place? Where do I fit? And God didn't create heaven and earth apart from us, but he created it for us to be a part of. See, so he placed us at the center of what he's doing. And he didn't just say, take off, but he's still working. That this creation story is both an account and an invitation that God is inviting us into creativity. God is inviting us into creating good And he invites us to see and to feel and to hear and to be a part of the good work. So what if we took Wednesday? We used Wednesday to be the day that we create good in the world. God knows there's enough evil. God knows there's enough violence. God knows there's enough uh, other conversations that are not leading to healthy and a vibrant culture. What if we decided, what if we determined that we were going to take Wednesdays and we were going to create good We were going to make sure that everything we were creating was good. Well, we were creating and reflecting on what's being done. And we're looking to see how am I making this good? How am I putting good into the world? Because there are people, sad individuals whose entire careers are are built around putting filth into the world. We have applications and social media uh, applications that are constantly being flooded with evil with pornography, with filth, and and, and violence, and there's enough people out there being paid to put filth into the world, why can't we as God's people rise up and say, we are going to 
place good in the world. But see, a lot of us, we get caught up in the violence. We get caught up in the evil, and it shifts our focus. However long the news is on, an hour or two, I don't know, but it's all full of horrible, filthy things. And then at the end of the news program, from what I understand, they typically go, and by the way, someone saved a bird from a nest. Have a good night. It's like, how can you spend an hour talking about evil and then just throw some good story in to make everybody feel okay when they go to bed at night? And our focus is shifted towards all the evil, and we lose hope. We have a countless number of people, even people in our church, that are losing hope because we think evil's winning. But I want to be people who say evil's not winning, there's hope, and we're going to prove it to you by placing good back out into the world. Because we've been called as, uh, by the creator to be creative. We're going to create good in the world. And we're going to use Wednesday to do that. See, we've dedicated a day of our week to a, to a God of evil who gives birth a, out of his armpits. Right? We only give MLK like one day a year. Like why don't we maybe switch that around? Why don't we try to harness Wednesday and start reclaiming it for the day that we can be people who create good But we often imagine the creation story starting in Genesis and ending in the same book, but the reality is the creation story continues in our lives. God, the God who set everything in motion, is now turning his attention towards you and me. And he's creating through us that he spoke things into existence and he hand-formed us, and now, because we've been created in his likeness, he's now creating through us. See, God's not done creating He's not done working, and we get to play a role in what God started in the creation of the universe. The creation story is an invitation for you and I to create, and the first place we see God creating is in our hearts. We see that God is creating in our hearts if we'll allow him to. God will continue doing his work, some of his best work, in our hearts. And in Psalms 51.10, it says, God, this is the psalmist speaking, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Anybody kind of weird about being clean? Like, I think clean freak would be the word. Anybody just love to be clean? Like, my wife and I, we enjoy our things being clean. Our house is clean, our floor clean. I like my car clean. I don't think Margie does. Regardless, uh, I think she does, but she's fighting the tide. Uh, We love things clean. We have three people in our home that are the antithesis of clean. Like, they don't love things clean. Last night, Roman had some friends over, uh, and uh, Margie and I kind of went to our room. It was getting late, and, and we heard some loud noises downstairs. Did you see what it was, Marge? <laughs> I figured you would. I figured you'd get the credit for that, too. Uh, we go, down, go downstairs this morning, and, and there's a huge stack of like 100 red Solo cups that for some reason made it all over the whole kitchen. I don't even know why. But that's just like what I woke up to because our kids don't believe in clean. And we'll go around behind them and clean, and then they'll walk through with like a bagel or something. It's like a trail. Like if you ever need to know where my kids are, follow the breadcrumbs because that's where they are. Whatever goes here also goes here. And so we'll sweep. Well, we don't sweep because, you know, you can't hide money. We have one of those vacuums that do it for us. So we go push a button. Margie sweeps. You push a button, and it goes around and, and cleans up, right? But then it's messy again. See, I think our hearts are much the same way. I think we step into spaces like this, and we go, God, I'm so sorry. We receive communion, and before we pray the prayer of confession, and we go, God, I need a clean heart. I need a new start. Monday's here. I need to start new. Tuesday comes, we face the battle. Maybe we don't win it. And like, oh, man. See, our, our hearts go from clean to dirty very quickly. And we've had a really tough couple of weeks, I'll be honest. It's, it's been pretty hard. It's been challenging for us as a family 
And, and, and one of the things I was mindful of is how quickly and how easily it is for anger and, and uh, cynicism to just kind of be crouching at the door. And the second you experience something like life that's a little tough, all of a sudden anger and bitterness and cynicism are like flooding in. Like, hey, let's go. Let's get bitter. Let's get angry. Let's get cynical. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Come on. You know what I mean? Because it feels good for the moment to adopt bitterness. It feels good to adopt anger. It feels good to adopt cynicism. And we start getting uh, friendly with these things. And then they start becoming part of our lives and they start affecting us. And I believe what we have a responsibility to do is to invite the creator of heaven and earth to comb through our hearts and to eradicate bitterness, eradicate jealousy, eradicate cynicism, eradicate anger so that we keep our hearts clean. We keep our hearts pure. This is exactly what the psalmist is asking God, create a clean heart in me. But see, God is still creating something fresh. God is still creating something new. God is still at work as the master craftsman. That the idea that God would create a clean heart implies that a clean heart may not exist. That sin muddies things up. Sin dirties things up. There's filth, and it needs to be eradicated. And what God does is he'll take what's there, and he'll make something new and clean. But a lot of us, we think we're too far gone for God to do work. We think we're too far gone, and what David is telling us is all we have to do is come to God and say, create a clean heart in me. And our hearts, when they become corrupt and and jaded over time, we start to lose compassion for one another. And when God creates a clean heart in us, we start to have a renewed compassion for others. And David is saying, creator of heaven and earth, turn your focus and your attention towards me and my heart. Can we even understand the gravity of that? That the one who spoke the universe into existence, a universe in which it's expanse, we have yet to discover. We can't even get to places that we want to get to in the universe, let alone even discover what else is out there. And God spoke it all into existence. Do you know how powerful it is that God now turns his creative power and potential to the human heart? See, we think things like the universe is God's most remarkable creation. We can see things like grass growing and rain falling, and it's beautiful. God's best work is done in me and you. And you know what's wonderful? It's like, I'll probably never see space. I'm just going to put that on the table. Like, it's becoming, you know, available. And I mean, it's not that I can't afford it. I'm just not going to do that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm fine here. There's oxygen and gravity. Like, you guys go, have a good time. I'll see the pictures online. I'm not going out there. So I'm not really ever firsthand account going to see uh, the solar system, you know, only from here at a safe distance. But you know, I can see what God's done in your life. I can see what God's done for you. You can see what God's done for me. And a lot of us get caught up in the big things that God's done, but the biggest thing he's done is change you and me. I mean, the fact that we're even sitting in this room is remarkable. We're all just one decision away from sitting in jail. We're all just a couple of bad decisions away from not being able to gather here or to have our hearts in a place where they can't be softened enough to hear from the Lord. And we, we don't often see the gravity of what God is doing in the human heart. And David, he wasn't asking God to correct his old heart. He was saying, I want a new one. This speaks to the nature of sin in our lives. We often imagine that sin is manageable. I can, I can just have a little sin, you know what I mean? And that's never the case. That it doesn't come in and, and hang out, but it takes over. And it creates damage that we can't even see to a point where we don't need to be recreated. We need to be created new. And in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea that we can be clean from all unrighteousness should be liberating. This should be exciting to us. 
that whatever we get into, whatever mistakes we make, God is waiting to create something clean, the creator of the universe, turning his attention toward us, that God continues to do his best work in our hearts. The second thing I believe God does is he begins to uh, continue his creative power in our lives. What we know about art is art changes the world. Music, poetry, uh, painting, photography, art shapes the world. And you sitting in your seat may not consider yourself an artist. But what I know about you without even having to know some of you is that there's something unique that you have to offer the world. And I've never met someone who doesn't have some kind of creative idea, doesn't have some kind of uh, potential to do something that puts good back out into the world. And you may not be able to paint or, or take, take pictures like uh, maybe a savant will, but what I know about you is that you have ideas. You have the capacity to put good in the world. And it may come from something as simple as baking or sending cards or making phone calls. But what I know is that you have the potential to create good in the world. And it may not be the world world, but it might be some small corner of your world. That I've never met someone who doesn't have some capacity to be able to do something kind. So what if we took Wednesday? We said, I'm going to do something good for someone somewhere. I'm going to put some good out into the world because I have ideas. I can solve problems. We're creative. When you tease the definition out far enough, you were created to make the world a better place. So let's take Wednesday to do that. You don't have to change the entire world, but you can make some little corner of it just a little bit better. And we do that. We do that when we take time for one another, when we have compassion for one another. We do small acts of kindness. We think of big, grandiose things, but sometimes it happens in the smallest of ways. But everybody wants to know what his or her purpose is. That's the constant you know, question we always have. What's my purpose in this world? What's my purpose in this world? And I believe we have purposes, but our one primary purpose is to point people to Jesus. And what better way to point people to Jesus than to be light in dark spaces? As violent and evil as the world gets, the light inside of us shines that much brighter. But as the old kid's song says, uh, you can't hide a light under a bushel, no, or whatever. Uh, that's us. Or worse, we shine our light in light places. It's much easier to like other, other people who are good and kind, right? But the light, when it shines in darker spaces, it creates good and it introduces good into a world that is filthy and, and vile and there's enough people destroying the world. So why can't we as God's people be people who love one another enough to create good. You may have heard uh, of this before, but in, in Japan there's this art called kintsuki. Kintsuki is this art form where they take uh, ceramics that have been broken, uh, maybe a dish or a cup, and, and it may have fallen off the counter and, and broken in many pieces, and instead of throwing it away like all of us would, they take it, and they actually piece it back together uh, with the bride. They take some lacquer with, with gold or silver dust and they piece it together so that it doesn't conceal the cracks, but it actually reveals them and it becomes part of the new dish. So you have a dish that's been broken, it's been pieced back together, the cracks are visible. But the Japanese say that they are celebrating the damage as part of the object's history rather than eliminating it. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of the human heart, really the human condition is that we've been beat up, we've been broken, we've been thrown around. But God doesn't toss us out. God pieces us back together, but he doesn't hide our wounds. See, we want to hide our wounds because we want to save face. We have pride. But God's not inviting us to hide our wounds. He's actually inviting us to illuminate them. 
Just like we can see, they can't see the universe, but I can see what God's done in you and me. People can see what God is doing in us in real time. Hey, we're not perfect. And you can see all of our cracks. You can see all of our imperfections. But God is at work in my life. And in Jeremiah 18, we find a prophet who was having a hard time hearing from God. I don't know what you know about prophets, but that's kind of their job, right? So if you can't hear from God, uh, you're not able to do what you do. And so Jeremiah, he begins to call out to God, and God says, I I want you to go to the potter's house. A bit of a strange request. God, I need to hear from you. It's been a while. And he's like, why don't you go to the potter's house? And so he does, and in in verse uh, verse 3, chapter 18, Jeremiah says, so I went down to the potter's house. And there he was, working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from clay became flawed in the potter's hands. So he made it into another jar, as it seemed right for him to do. I think this is such a beautiful image of what God is doing. And our lives, when placed on the wheel of the potter, can be worked and reworked into something usable, something beautiful. And many times we give up. Many times we quit, many times we think we've messed up too much or that there's nothing creative or original about us that we can place back into the world. And all we have to do is go to God with our mess and say, rework this. This isn't working. I need you to rework it. And it starts with our hearts and it pours into our lives and the way we live our lives becomes our greatest testimony. But many of us, we try to change our actions without trying to change our hearts. And it doesn't work We try to change our behavior before we change the reason why we behave that way. When God creates a clean heart, our lives begin to model that. And in Jeremiah 18, 5, it continues, The word of the Lord came to me, House of Israel, can I not treat you as the potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration that you've been worked and reworked so that you can help make the world a better place. But you may feel like you have nothing to offer, But you do. I've not found anything that God has created that does not serve some purpose. God continues to do his best work through us. And you're in charge of the change that you make in the world. So will you take responsibility? See, the third thing I believe that God does is creation continues in our legacy. Creation continues in our legacy. The older I get, the more I start thinking, how am I going to be remembered? How am I going to be known when I'm gone? Like, what legacy am I going to leave behind? I start thinking about certain things, like, you know, can I I purchase these boots? I'm like, they're going to live forever. I hope one of my kids are going to wear them one day. You know what I mean? Like, weird, like, legacy kind of things. Maybe it's like, as I'm getting older, maybe I'm just neurotic. But I'm thinking, like, what am I going to leave behind? How am I going to be known? And the reality is, we will be known by our faith. I want my faith to be the one thing that transfers from generation to generation. And yet what I've found is that the enemy wants to stop that. At every front, he wants, to, he wants to cut off our legacy, which is why we fight for our kids. We fight for, if you had grandkids, I don't. But you fight for those because that is our legacy. We're going to pass down the name of Christ from generation to generation. And in Psalm 78, 5, it says he established a testimony in Jacob. And he set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So that future generations, children yet to be born, might know that they were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's work, but keep his commandments. See, I think that we'll never create anything more significant than our lives. Our lives are the legacy that we leave behind. They're the thing that point people to Christ. They're the thing that create generation after generation of people who fear and love God, that your life is a work of art 
But do you know that your life is a work of art that demands to be shared? It demands to be shared. Can you imagine painting the most beautiful painting and never sharing it with anyone? Creating the most beautiful work of art and holding it for yourself, it becomes selfish. The moment we stop sharing our lives with others, maybe because we're too broken or we don't feel like we're perfect, we cut off what God wants to do in creating a legacy that points people to Him. That your life, no matter how mundane or messy or complex it may seem, is beautiful. And you're building a legacy that will go on for generations because we are people who save nothing for the next life. We give everything that we have. We are people who give everything here and now. That we pour ourselves out, whatever little or much we have, because we are God's finest work of art. We are God's workmanship. But we've got to share our lives with others because God is continuing to do his best work through us. And together we are God's clay. But we've got to place ourselves on the potter's wheel. We've got to choose to take Wednesdays and do something good in the world. Did you know what's beautiful in Genesis? God creates everything by speaking it into existence. But when it comes to man, he decides to hand form us with his bare hands. He takes man and he creates man. And then he takes from man and he creates woman. And I love that there's this handcrafted image of God working on us with his own hands. And in the last couple of decades, we've become fascinated with craftsmanship, with handmade things. We have Etsy, and you know, like you can buy handmade stuff. And, and we're like, oh, this is so novel. And yet, you know, before Henry Ford, everything was handmade. And then Henry Ford introduces automation, and then we have China and bringing in all the mass-produced goods. And we're a society that is now accustomed to mass-produced goods. And because everything's cyclical, we have a generation of people going, no, I want handmade stuff again. And we start to have this growing appreciation for what we really always had. And I got caught up in it too. Like I love things that are handcrafted. You start to pay attention to the craftsmanship. Again, maybe it's because I'm getting old, but I'm like, oh, that, that was sewn well, or oh, that was put together really nicely, you know what I mean? Because we're appreciating it. But why, when it comes to you and me, do we not appreciate the reality that God handmade us? Spoke everything else into existence, but he handcrafted you and me, shaped and molded us, and we were handcrafted in the image of the great creator. We were created to create. And there's something beautiful about God getting involved in our lives, shaping and molding us, but we have to allow God to do this. We have to allow God to, to get involved in our lives. We've got to place our lives on the potter's wheel and say, God, you've got to reshape me. You've got to reform me. I need to be re re renewed. I need a clean heart. And it's only in those moments where we're willing to do this, we're willingly place ourselves on the potter's wheel that God will take us and create a clean heart. He'll create a new life, and he'll create a long-lasting legacy. And that's what I want for us. So I don't know where you are this morning in your life. But I want us to be people who find ways to create good in the world. Can we put good in the world? Can we let people see the light that's in us? Can we be people who don't get caught up in the evils of the world? Be people who decide that we're going to be part of pointing people to a God who makes and remakes, shapes and reshapes. But it starts with you and me. It starts with us humbly asking ourselves, God, am I starting to be formed in a different direction? Am I starting to be shaped in a way that's maybe not where, the way you want it to be? And Jeremiah begins to talk of a, 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 something that's being created that's not useful. Am I, am I becoming unuseful to you, God? 
Is my life taking a turn in, in a way that I'm no longer useful? And if so, I want to place my life so that you can reshape me into something that you can use. Because that's our opportunity. That's our responsibility. If you would bow your head and close your eyes across the room.